Hello, Osha here. I uh, just wanted to thank you so much for downloading this show. Now, as you know, podcasts, they're free to listen to right now. Not really costing you anything except, you know, your mobile phone and the data plan you're on to listen to this. So it's free for you, but it doesn't cost nothing to make. Oh, no. Andy, who uh, edits the show, I have to pay him. I also have to pay Rachel, who is... Uh, um, my executive producer, and I pay them both because they do a very, very good job, and without them I just couldn't make the show because a podcast like this doesn't make itself by itself itself. So you might hear an ad. If you hear an ad, thank you. If you don't hear an ad, you're going to hear Natasha's Dr. Spoyer say something cool. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I just take it as given that a majority of the community doesn't want a violent society, whether that's against men, women, and certainly not children. So what is it about this small group that finds it so threatening, the work that I and others do? A lot of people will say, but what about men? And of course I'm concerned about men, whether it's their welfare, whether it's their safety, or whether it's ensuring that men feel particularly those who might be at risk of being perpetrators. I want them to feel they've got resources to change that behaviour as well. And yep, there are lots of people who say, but it's not all men. Of course it's not all men. You know, no one's suggesting that, but we are suggesting that all men can play a role in helping change some of the attitudes and behaviours. That is Australian politician, diplomat, advocate and author Natasha Stottespoyer. And this, this is episode 371 of Better Than Yesterday. Welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osha Ginsberg. Thank you for being here. This is episode 371 of the show with Natasha Stott Despoyer. Uh, you can find her. She's on Twitter, N Stott Despoyer, N S T O T D E S P O J A. She's fantastic. She is the uh, chair of the board of Our Watch, ourwatch.org.au. We'll talk more about Natasha in just a moment. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for everybody that listened to the show on Friday. I hope your calendar's going well. Send me a photo of your calendar. If you don't know what I'm talking about, listen to Friday's show. Send us your email at gmail.com. That's where you can find me. Um, how are we? Well, look, 
the dog's just woken up the baby. Uh, I'm not. What am I going to tell you? I'm a bit pissed off at the dog because uh, we live on a walking route to a primary school, and so kids are like, "Yay, fuck yeah, we get to go home!" At the end of the day, and the dog goes, "Wow, oh, we're being attacked." My children and just barks really loud. This is a dog who's on Prozac. All right, barks really loud, and it's right in the middle of Wolf's nap time. And then the baby's awake, and then all the things that we were going to do while the baby's asleep, which if you've had babies in your life, you know is everything you need to do in the day. You've got to cram into nap time. All that goes out the window. So I'm a little pissed off right now. But uh, look, the dog's on Prozac. He's a jumpy dog. He's just a f- bit freaked out by kind of everything. A paper bag or a plastic bag is his worst enemy. He's just having a hard time, man. And he's just trying to warn us, guys, guys, we're in danger. Oh, canal. We're in trouble of being attacked. It's like, no, we're not, Frank. It's just children enjoying their life. Just shut your face. Anyway, so he's woken up the baby. Anyway, so I'm a bit, a bit annoyed at that right now. It's, uh, <laughs> speaking of dogs, it's been a big week for the baby. Um, Wolf, our youngest. So uh, we've got two kids. One's uh, nearly 17. The other one's just 17 months. And we have, um, yeah, two kids. And the other day, the dog of the aforementioned anxious dog who's on Prozac um, was barking at something. And the baby shot his hand out and pointed at the dog and said, ah, ah. Ah, ah, just like he's seen me do. And my blood turned to ice. My blood turned to ice because it's like, I remember my my youngest brother telling me, watch out, man, baby see, baby do. And he's freaking right, man. He is right. I'm like, oh, my God, you're watching me chastise. You're doing the angry me chastising a dog, but as a baby. That's the terrible part of it because now I have to be on my absolute best behaviour when I'm around the baby and for I think the next 18 years I'll need to do that. But also, you know, this morning I was doing my uh, rehab exercises which involve uh, squats, air squats, and then um, later on Wolf was copying me. He was even doing the squat faces. It was really cool. It was really cool. But he's really going for it. Baby's going great. He's um, doesn't have a lot of words. Probably, I don't know, got 20 or 30 words that he can use, but he understands absolutely everything you tell him. So if you say, hey, Wolf, can you go get your water bottle from the uh, living room, please, and bring it back here at dinner time, he'll go and get his water bottle and bring it back because it's dinner time. Like He knows exactly what you're saying to him, and it's great. It's super fun. And he's, you know, just really getting out there and enjoying the world. And we went to a new park the other day for the first time, and there's a big kind of spiral slide at this park. Um, which he's never been on before. He's only been on straight slides. And he just just fanged straight to the top of this massive kind of fort where the slide, you know, launched off from. And he just grabbed both sides of it. He saw it was a slide. He grabbed both sides of the railings and he just flung himself out. Now, as you know, those spiral slides, the inside corner pretty much goes straight down to the first bend. And he was on the inside of it and he just flung himself out into midair. Uh, thankfully, with my gammy hip, I'd managed to get back down to the bottom of the fort in time to kind of repo him midair so he didn't hit his head. And then he just went, did two loops and hit the hit the bottom part. He didn't hit the ground. He just kind of slung out the bottom. He was like, again, again, and rounding up again. This time he flung himself out in midair, but his foot caught the slide and he then spun midair. And again, I had to kind of catch, like, he's fearless. It's great fun. Um, but... Now we're at the um, the fearless baby phase, which uh, is exciting and terrifying all at once. Because again, I think this lasts about um, eighteen years. So, yeah, it was pretty epic. 
Just a quick, just a quick intro today because um, I really want to get to Natasha Stott Despoia because uh, she's pretty fantastic. We did speak a, a few months back, um, but I'll, I'll tell you about that in a minute. If you're in uh, Victoria at the moment, or if you're in Western Australia, I hope you're dealing with a lockdowny situation. Um, okay, um, we're going to be all right. We're learning how to deal with these. Every time they happen, we know how to deal with them a little bit better, and eventually we'll get really, really good at it. But as a community, we're we're, we're still learning. So just I'm I'm sending love to you. I'm sending a lot of love to you. And just before we get to this next bit, I just wanted to thank everyone that dropped in and saw me on Twitch. I'm just getting back on the bike lately, and um, it's great to see you. Twitch.tv slash Osha Ginsburg. Um, go there, sign up, get an account. It's a streaming platform. It's like YouTube but live all the time. And um, I ride my bike there. And if you want to talk to me, you can talk to me. You can come and chat with me. And so if you sign up, it'll send you an email or give you a notification when I'm on. And, um, yeah, come and, you know, we can ride bikes together. It'd be super fun. It'd be really, really good. So before we get to Natasha Stott Despoia, if conversations with incredibly intelligent, super powerful women uh, really float your boat, then you are absolutely going to want to scroll back in your podcast feed and check out episode 307 with Dr. Kristen Ferguson. She is quite the powerful human being. She is the deputy chair of the ABC, uh, the board of the ABC and um, she's an ex-military she was in the RAF she's ex-RAF she's an author she's a commentator she created hashtag celebrating women Uh, she's quite an extraordinary human being with a really really interesting perspective on what it is to be a powerful woman in a place like the uh, Australian Air Force and um, I certainly hope that you take the time to listen to it that's episode 307 here's just a slice believe in yourself (laughs) you know I think that's a big one and actually kick out the imposter syndrome you know I'm dreadful I, I still deal with that all the time but I've become a lot better at ignoring it now or hearing it and going, oh, yeah, I've heard all this before, move on. But I think you can give yourself permission to be yourself, just how enjoyable that is, Um, whatever the environment you're in and whatever your role is. I don't think it means that you need to have a certain level of power or influence to be yourself. I would hope that whatever you're doing, you can find that authenticity. So for me, it's just about being able to give yourself permission to live the life you'd always hoped you were going to live and make that happen, not just hope that it'll happen tomorrow or that someone else will create that for you. That is Dr. Kristen Ferguson. If you want to check out that episode, it is 307 in your podcast feed. Just scroll on back and maybe check it out once you're done with this episode with Natasha Stott Despoia. So let me tell you about my guest today, Natasha Stott Despoia. Oh, my goodness, what a hero. She is an Australian politician, diplomat, advocate, author. She is the founding chair of the board of Our Watch, which is the National Foundation to Prevent Violence Against Women and Their Children. She was previously the Australian Ambassador for Women and Girls at uh, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and very recently, very excitingly, she has been elected to the United Nations Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. Her, her work at Our Watch is very, very significant. Our Watch is the national leader in the primary prevention of violence against women and their children in our country. And they work very, very hard to embed gender equality, to prevent violence where Australians live, where they work and where they socialise. And 
this work crosses many, many boundaries, which is where Natasha and I kind of connected and, you know, I asked her to come here on the show. She connected, we connected on Twitter during an episode of Bachelor in Paradise, actually. And she had been talking about one of the behaviours that she had seen by one of the boys on the show. And so we organised the time to talk. And so a couple of months back when we were both in some form of COVID lockdown or another, uh, we managed to get together and, and chat. Now, there's been a few of these episodes that are airing a, a weeks, if not months, after they were recorded. That is purely due to the nature of 2020 when, you know, there was some weeks and months where we didn't know what the hell was going to happen, so we banked as many episodes as we could. So that's where we are. Where I'm still absolutely believing that, you know, this, this episode has an enormous amount of, uh, in fact, more relevance than it did when we recorded it, I think. Because parts of the country are going back into lockdown and, you know, this kind of seemingly at this point endless routine of, of being locked down and the economic outcomes of so many people being put in limbo and then stresses coming into the home and then, you know, unfortunately uh, justifying the reasons for a place like Our Watch. It's very important that we have this conversation with Natasha. Now, there's a lot in this that we're going to cover. Uh, fair to say when we're talking about Natasha's work, we will talk about and we do talk about violence against women in this conversation. Just a heads up there. You can find out more about Natasha.despoyer at ourwatch.org.au. Enjoy this conversation. Oh, she's also on Twitter. You can find her on Twitter where uh, she is quite prolific and fantastic to follow at n.despoyer, N-S-T-O-T-T-D-E-S-P-O-J-A, n.despoyer is where she is. Okay, legends, uh, enjoy this conversation with Natasha.despoyer. Are you using the microphone that's on your computer itself? No. What am I using? I'm using this one. That's perfect. The closer you, you can get it to your, the closer you can get it to your you, the okay, better. How's this? If I'm testing, is that a bit better? Have you got it on a little stand? Have you? Yes, I do. You know what would be wild? If you, <laughs> if you get one of those glorious legal books behind you and put it on top of it, so it's closer to your face. I love that. I, we have finally found a role for Senate Hansard. <laughs> Which year are we going with? <laughs> Never been opened. <laughs> Seriously. It? And the reason that we keep them as politicians is not because we're wankers, although that may be the reason. It's just that they print your name on it at the bottom. All right. So you can't resell them. Oh. You can't donate them. You can't do anything with them. Wow. How's that? Is that better? Far better. Far, there's a this thing, is great. Well, there's a thing, I'm going to take a, a photo of this. A, this is killing me. There's a thing called a proximity effect. <laughs> Hi. There's a, like the closer, you, the closer you get to the microphone, the more less tinny your voice sounds basically. More like okay. how you actually sound when you're near me. It's just the way the microphones okay. work. Anyway. Hi. How are you going? This is so lovely to see you, albeit virtually, and you're very kind to include me in your podcast because you're spoilt for choice. I know that. Oh, look, I'm very grateful to get get you on. I'm clearly, I mean, like I'm someone that was uh, cheering from the sidelines as you first entered the public eye, and I was uh, I was ever so happy that someone pretty close to my age was in Canberra. And I believe rocking into work in Dr. Martin's, if I recall correctly. Yeah, still do. Still wear them. <laughs> Except these days I'm more, you know, middle-aged lady, lady, sort of Mary Jane kind of docs. But, yeah, love a sensible shoe. Actually, it's amazing that I'm out of pyjamas and trackwear because this lockdown is very lazy. But, yeah, we've actually had 
quite a serious case, as you may have seen in the papers today, or you will see, uh, there was a horrible domestic violence event last night in Australia, in South Australia, a woman was killed. And so I've been talking to the media about reporting, which is why I'm wearing a jacket for the first time in a, about four weeks. So it's been a fairly intense day. So, yeah, so I, this is this is good. Okay. This is good. Well, I, we are going to have, I hope you don't mind, We'd, I'd like to dig into that sort of thing a little of bit, course. which is why we're, why we're here. I mean, of course. we could talk about your extraordinary career, which I would, I would dearly love to, yet uh, when we had this podcast lined up, there were, for one reason or another, we weren't able to make it happen the first time around. And now we rescheduled and here we are in lockdown. So we're recording this in yep. April, 2020. We are in, uh, I don't know, fourth week of the COVID-19 kind of lockdown here in Australia. Things are going pretty well. Less people have died here overall and will die in two hours in New York. So we are, it's tough on everybody, but we're doing pretty well. However, I'm grateful I'm talking to you today because one of the unintended side effects of locking everybody down is a precipitous rise in domestic yep. violence here in Australia. And so you yep. are a uh, you're a perfect person to talk to about that now. So before we get into that, before yep. lockdown, as a country, as a, as Australians, we like to think we're we're pretty good. We're about as good as it gets. We're we're like America, but with less guns. Everything's pretty good. We dig stuff out of the ground. We sell it overseas. Lucky country. Hooray for everything. How do we go on, you know, the global scale as far as domestic violence goes in countries of our kind of socioeconomic bracket? Australia is pretty much a global global average when it comes to violence against women and children. So in terms of domestic violence, family violence and sexual assault, around a third of women have been affected in some way. There are places in our region, so if you think of our Pacific brothers and sisters in places like uh, Fiji, Vanuatu, Papua New Guinea, they have some of the highest rates of violence in the world. So we know that, say, up to 90% of women in PNG in some parts of that country have been affected. So Australia, we have high rates, but relatively speaking, some of the places closest to us have some of the worst rates of violence in the world. So it's, it's a big issue for our country. It doesn't make sense that the rates, though, in this country, if we were a global average, it, it doesn't make sense that that global average is accepted uh, when you consider that, on average, one woman in Australia will die a violent death well, once a week, uh, usually yep. by the hand of someone uh, that she is in a relationship with that she already knows. And I, I, I don't know the stats as to how many women get attacked or, or suffer physical actual mm -hmm. violence against them. But, I, you know, if, if all I know is that it's not my line, it's Annabelle Crabb's line, that if that was shark attacks, we would drain the ocean. Precisely. <laughs> we have a really strange attitude as leaders, policymakers, even as citizens to the issue of gendered violence. So last night in South Australia, a hor horrific murder. A woman died violently, we presume on Wednesday night. That makes her the 11th woman this year at least, to have died violently as a consequence of intimate partner violence. We're 14 weeks into the year. So you're right. Any other crisis, quite rightly, with a death toll like that, we would respond as a national emergency. So there are lots of reasons that we're uncomfortable talking about the issue, intervening in the issue. The case in South Australia yesterday, this woman's neighbours, not just one set of neighbours, but other neighbours heard her calling for help and no one called the police. No one. 
So we have a really extraordinary view when it comes to the issue of the private nature of family violence. And I am hoping we're going to address that and change it through changing hearts and minds and behaviours and attitudes that lead to the violence in the first place. It's very difficult talking about this as as a, as a man, I'm in my my late 40s now. I'm 46 years old, and what I grew up with in popular culture as acceptable ways to treat and speak to women and what was expected of women, it's not like someone sat me down one day and said, "Listen, Andrew, I was Andrew then. Listen, Andrew, it's totally fine to do this, and and this is all the woman's capable of." And da 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 da. da. No one actually said that to me, but mm. like, there's a channel on Foxtel that's replaying James Bond movies. You know what's a really the amount of times El, in Elvis Presley movies he slaps a woman in the face, the amount of times James Bond slaps a woman in the face, like oh, and this was a major motion picture, and this guy was a yes. hero to squillions, and it's not like someone sat me down and told me this, but it's, it was just kind of ingrained through what I absorbed over over my life, and so when we challenge these things, we're also challenging everything that I I learned as a kid in many ways, Natasha. Absolutely. And this is why when we talk about primary prevention, so, you know, preventing the violence before it starts, uh, we talk about it in generational terms. We recognise that this is not going to happen overnight. In fact, it could take generations because all the things that you and I have learnt, so whether it's men or women, boys and girls, those attitudes and behaviours can take years, in fact, generations to change. And, you know, it's funny how we see those movies or maybe song lyrics or even jokes in a very different cultural context these days, which shows how things are changing and changing for the better. And sometimes boys and girls now, when I go and see respectful relationships education in schools, I'm amazed at how these kids just go, of course we're equal or of of course, a girl can be a doctor or all those sort of stereotypes. Or, of course, we shouldn't talk to each other in ways that is belittling or sexist or throw like a girl or all of those expressions that some of us have grown up with. But having said that, even, you know, even my family struggles with some of these stereotypes. I often, you know, tell the story about how, you know, my husband Ian was driving down the road not so long ago both kids in the back seat. So we had Conrad, my son, Cordelia, my daughter, drives past a car yard and says to my son, hey, mate, why don't we go and look at cars this afternoon? And my daughter said, what, Dad? Girls don't like cars too? And, you know, we are conscious of the fact that there are so many messages we send boys and girls from the moment they're born, whether they're pink or blue, you know, all of these messages. They may sound like I'm being a bit picky, but you know what? They actually do add up to a society that either respects, you know, men and women's equality or doesn't. And you're saying the the gradual impact of all these messages, these micro messages that build up across the life of, and look, I'm just going to say it right up here. When it comes to domestic violence, yes, men can be victims and yes, women can be perpetrators. There are people in my life who have been men who have been victims of domestic violence and it's Mm -hmm. horrid, yet the vast majority is men inflicting violence upon women. So uh, this conversation, we'll mainly talk about the, the vast majority there. So you're saying that these micro messages that build up over the course of someone's life, by the time they get into their first kind of serious living relationship, I don't know, let's say 19, 20 years old, 21, it's not like, oh, there was a guy at work who 
talked cavalierly about how he slapped his wife around, and so he this bloke went home and did it. That it's no, it's just the, it's the the effect of just squillions of little things he's seen and heard for those 19, yeah. 20 years. Look, first of all, your point about men being victims is a really important one because any kind of violence is abhorrent, and all victims, whether they're male or female, deserve support. They deserve justice and they deserve to be believed. So we take that as a start. And you're right. Men are in the main, the perpetrators of violence, not just against women, but against men as well. 95% of perpetrators of violence actually are male. And you know what? The experience of violence for men and women is really different. So as a bloke, you're more likely to experience violence from someone you don't know, more likely to be a guy in a public place under a range of circumstances, whereas women tend to experience violence at the hands of someone they do know and usually a partner or a former partner. So when you talk about, you know, all these things that build up to create a society where that violence is acceptable, and I'm not saying, because none of us really accept that violence. There are a whole you know, many people in the community today who are completely outraged by what's happened in my state overnight, who are still shattered by what happened to Hannah Clark or Hannah Baxter in Brisbane earlier this year. So we don't condone it, but there are little things that can add up to it. And you're right, we do know the evidence tells us really clearly gender inequality is the reason we have violence. And so it doesn't mean that just because, you know, you make a sexist joke or you're right, some guy makes a comment in the office or a teacher makes a silly remark, that that leads automatically to violence. It doesn't necessarily, of course. But when you have a society where still young people think that women who get raped, that there's still a percentage of those women who should be blamed because they might be drunk or they may be under the influence of alcohol or it may be because what they're wearing, when you have those attitudes or you still have a group of young people who believe that men should have a dominating role when it comes to decisions in a relationship, these little attitudes start to add up and they do make a difference. You can't be what you can't see. I say that on this show a yep. lot. So I'm, I'm guessing that a lot of this, and then the most influential thing in anybody's life is their parents. So it sounds like it's it's a cycle that is a very, very difficult to interrupt, particularly if someone has grown up with any kind of dominance or violence themselves. Not, not all violence is physical. There can be, you know, not only emotional violence, but also control around like finances and things like that. And if someone yep. grew up that way, like, oh, that's just the way that mum was, or that's just the way that dad was. So this is what I will do. It's not, you don't just decide it. It just osmoses into our very operating systems and then it comes out as we try to live our lives, doesn't it? It absolutely does. And you're right about parents. So still the research tells us that we are the biggest influence in our children's lives. So caregivers, parents, family. Although sometimes I'm not convinced of that. I look at popular culture and I wonder who's the biggest influence on my son. But no, apparently I still am, at least for a bit longer. But we also know um, sports stars, TV stars, you know, people in popular culture have a huge influence on our children as well. So if people lead by example, then that's fantastic. If sports stars like, you know, we work with Ben and Hester Brown. So Ben Brown, AFL legend, says to people, you know what, I think we should treat men and women, boys and girls equally. I think AFL and AFLW are equally important then a lot of kids will go, you know what, I hear that message. But it's not enough just to hear that message in the sporting field or in the education classroom setting. 
or even in your workforce, if then you come home and you get different messages. So everywhere we go, everywhere we work, all the places in which we love, live, learn, work and play, all of those settings create a society that actually values men and women equally and fosters respectful, healthy, ethical relationships. But you know what? There's a lot to do. I mean, I'm not saying it's a simple (laughs) issue. It's complex, but at its core, at the heart of it, if we can create a society that is equal, wow, we will eliminate violence. We are a society that's fairly equal as far as the balance of our society. We're roughly 50-50 cisgendered males and females. Yet our leadership classes, both in the private sector and most definitely in parliament, do not reflect that. When you first started working in Canberra in parliament, what was it like? (laughs) (laughs) When I first got into Parliament, which, believe it or not, was 25 years ago this year, I was one of 14% of the female cohort of the federal parliament and was the youngest. And so all these novelty factors came into play. But even I didn't realise just how unusual it was to have someone who didn't fit the stereotype of being an older male usually pale, you know, middle-class, suit-wearing politician. And, you know, I joke about the fact now that my first business lunch as a senator, the question was, you know, did you get into politics to meet a husband? And, hey, Osha, you've seen the calibre available. I mean, I'm not... (laughs) But it just... Little things like that, which I can laugh about now, but at the time... A lot of attention was paid to everything from my hair colour to my outfits, my parental status eventually, my marital status, and it just sort of gets exhausting when that was the focus. When, you know, as most people know, I'm pretty much a nerd. My focus was legislating and policy work and trying to ensure that relatively young people's voices were heard and that we had a bit more diversity and difference reflected. And We've improved a bit as a parliament. I'm not sure about the level of civil discourse. It's pretty brutal and horrible watching parliament or listening to it these days. I know people are pretty cynical about politicians with good reason, but there are some good ones there trying to make a difference. And that's that's what I tried. I had more than a dozen years and at least I hope in some small way I made it possible for other young people or uh, maybe women of all backgrounds to say, you know what? If she can do it, anyone can. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. 
What are your thoughts about when it comes to you know the gender makeup of, for example, the government of Australia? What are your thoughts about how a more balanced gender makeup of of the parliament? How would that then affect the community and how would that affect the society if we did get closer to 50-50? Two things. Firstly, you said it, you can't be what you can't see. So I think people would have more faith in some of our elected institutions and our politicians if they felt when they looked at them, oh my gosh, that's like me. That's like my circumstance. Or they look like me. They reflect what I care about. So there's that issue of diversity so that people actually, wow, can say, that gives me faith. But the second thing is we actually know that diversity leads to better decision-making. More women in a parliament, it has been proven, actually can affect the types of decisions that affect families and communities, including there is a link between more women in parliament and better legislation to deal with violence against women and children. So, all of these things make a difference. But role models, oh my gosh, I never underestimate the importance of role models. And you you may laugh at me, but one of my obsessions, of course, is The Bachelor and Bachelorette, partly because I have watched over the seasons how men and women react to each other. And in recent years, I've loved it when men call out bad behaviour among men or women are much more assertive and assert a bit more of their, not just girl power, but camaraderie. So, I know that sounds funny and you'll think, gosh, it's not just about the parliament, it's about all those cultural figures as well. But yeah, politics, I'm appalled. Osher, I thought 25 years from when I first got into parliament, we'd have equal representation. I cannot believe that where a third of the federal parliament is female. That just breaks my heart. Yeah, it's always tough when you see them all line up for that. And the new Prime Minister's got his first cabinet photo and there's like Julie Bishop in the back corner. You know, it's like, like, (laughs) come on, man, seriously. (laughs) When you are trying to tackle something so colossal, you know, from... You know, we, we spoke before, your your son helped you get uh, the Skype sorted out so we could speak today. But when you go from something <laughs> like, even as the micro-messaging around the, the, the physical body types of the modelling of a video game character of, of you know, the yeah. women in video games, all the way through to the, the roles of women in action movies, all the way through to, you know, do I ever see a, a woman as a principal of a high school? All this sort of stuff. It's just like, it's so big. There's, yep. it's, it's like trying to plug a squillion holes in, in the dike in the Netherlands, right? But if you, it seems to me, at least, if you at least start way up here at the parliamentary level, at the governmental level, it's like, all right, let's yep. go, for, let's lead from here and then hopefully that, that will then create decisions throughout the community that might start to change this stuff. Absolutely. Symbolism matters. So you're right. We can't be what we can't see. But then if our politicians model respectful, healthy, equal behaviour among themselves, and let's face it, particularly in the last couple of years, they have not done that. And particularly some of the accusations of bullying of not just women, but men as well. I mean, if they can't model respectful relationships, how on earth do we take seriously the respectful relationships education that we expect our children or colleagues or friends to be involved in. So, look, it is all very, you know, you said osmosis. That's so true. It's a top-down but a bottom-up approach. But the gist of it is we've all got a role. So, as a good parent, if you model respectful relationships, then you're right. That's going to have a positive influence. If teachers 
understand that they should treat boys and girls you know, not differently in the classroom based on their gender, whatever that identification may be, of course. In workplaces, if we start to think through some of the things we say to each other, how we treat each other, do we have a workplace where someone puts up an inappropriate joke or a poster? And I know a lot of people, Osha, will say, oh my God, you sound such a humorless feminist. And it's like, nah, we can still be funny. We can still laugh at a whole bunch of things. But if it really comes a joke at the expense of a girl because she's a girl, then I think maybe we need to rethink a few things. When I heard the other day that during this pandemic lockdown that phone calls to domestic violence crisis lines are down, but emails and text messages are up because Mm -hmm. often the victim is in the same room as the perpetrator and they can't actually get on the phone and and say anything. It chilled me to my bloody core. And it seems to me, though, that... By the time that man is in that situation, you know, the intervention that you're looking at is basically the law. It's the cops. Where Mm -hmm. has the research found the best time to get intervention into a man's life or a young man's life is? And what's the most effective time of their life to get this messaging across? Essentially, the simple answer is the earlier, the better. If we're brought up with views that we should treat each other with respect, if we understand that boys and girls are equal or should have the same opportunities, entitlements, responsibilities, whatever that may be, earlier the better. So that's why people, particularly Rosie Batty, who's been a brilliant advocate on this issue generally, but particularly she has championed respectful relationships, education in schools. So it's got to be age appropriate. Obviously, it's about really basic stuff, how we treat each other. So yeah, earlier the better. Having said that, it's never too late to change behaviours. We all do it all the time. I'm challenging myself all the time in the way that I raise my kids. I don't know how many of you got kids who are in lockdown or quarantine at the moment, and we're all trying to be teachers as well as parents. And I, all those gender stereotypes, I've got a young daughter who has been meticulous. She's working brilliantly, cleaning her room, taking recess breaks. And I've got a son who is Yep, gaming right now. And that's no reflection on either of them in a bad way. It's just people will say to me, oh, boys will be boys. And I go, you know what? Some of that's true because some of it is how we've created society. And I know if I want to get a job done, maybe it's easier to ask my daughter. So we're all challenging our own attitudes and behaviours. So it's never too late to change. And you were saying earlier, Osher, about a childhood history of violence, for example, you can totally understand why some young people write to me and say, you seem shocked that someone could hurt a child or a partner, but I've grown up with this. It's all I've ever known. So how am I supposed to know any different? So just having that childhood history, though, doesn't automatically mean you become a perpetrator. There are amazing people who get rid of that cycle, get out of that cycle. So yeah, there's always opportunities for intervention, but I'm a big fan of primary prevention. So that means starting right at the very, very beginning. A part of intervention, uh, I guess, when you get to someone my age is is often, you know, people who are, I guess, into their kind of adulthood, mid-20s on, is call it out. Call it out for what it is. Call it out for what it is. That can, I know from experience, that can be tough because especially if it's someone you don't expect someone in a position of authority, someone who you might have been best mates with for so long and then they come out with something and you go, oh, man, that 
that breaks my heart that you just shared that meme in that group chat because that's not okay. Yep. Fuck, what, how do I feel about you now? <laughs> you know, and that's really hard. I'm, I'm just being, trying to be as honest as I can. That's just, that's really hard, that stuff. So part of me is like, well, let this one slide because <laughs> this person A is either, you know, my boss or not that it is any of my bosses, but, you know, or, or someone that I, I deeply love and has been there for me in many years, many times, but, oh, what are you doing, man? <laughs> you know, it's hard. It really is hard. If this was easy, we would have solved this. It's hard because sometimes it's uncomfortable. You know, people often say to me, what can I do? And I'm always saying, do something. And it might be calling out something that's inappropriate. It might be intervening when it's safe to do so. It may be calling for help or calling the cops or just checking on someone. But I say that in a way that makes it sound easy. But I think of the many times, particularly in parliament, where I couldn't call out bad behavior or else I was called precious princess. Or there are times when I've been in a group with my husband and yeah, you get surprised. You think, really? My neighbor honestly thinks that or treats their partner like that. And suddenly you just don't know what to think. And it's really hard, you know, knowing what to do. And it's funny because one of the campaigns that we run at Our Watch, which is the national organization to prevent violence against women and their children, is bystander campaigns and showing people. You can actually go onto the website and look at scenarios and think, ah, I could have done that. I didn't think of that because all our research shows a majority of people want to intervene, but a majority of people also think that their friends wouldn't back them up. So we're all a bit embarrassed about calling out bad behavior because we don't know if our friends or our colleagues have got our backs. So maybe we'll start to change that. Can you talk us through what one of those uh, interventions looks like? Like for, if, it's, if it's a complete stranger, I think people have less problem. I mean, as yeah. long as it's safe to do so, they would have less problem going, hang on, mate, what are you, what are you doing? Yeah. Versus if it's someone that you've known for a long time, it gets harder and harder the, the closer you are to this person, I guess. So what, what, is those, what could one of those interventions maybe look like? Well, it may be if someone makes a really poor taste, sexist joke, it's actually saying something simple like, mate, that's actually not funny. That's really disrespectful. Try again. Or it might be someone actually is literally harassing someone. It might be a waiter in a restaurant being given a hard time, or it might be a woman walking down the street and guys are, you know, making her feel uncomfortable. Yes, going up to people and actually saying, not cool. Or it might actually be showing support for the person who you realize is uncomfortable. It might be that woman who's being wolf whistled at but doesn't think it's kind of cool and is clearly embarrassed or feeling worried or scared, showing support, just saying, look, we can see you. It's okay. You've got support. Don't be worried. Again, these things are actually quite simple, but they're really sometimes awkward to do. And I honestly, I can think of countless times where friends have made jokes in front of me, even when, you know, one of my kids' coaches said that my son, oh, what a mummy's boy. And I was like, seriously? You're actually, do you know the work that I do? I thought, <laughs> hmm, brave man, very brave man. But, you know, even with the work that I do, and I don't want my friends to be on tippy toes around me the whole time going, oh, far out, you know, what can we say? Because it's not like that. Because I think most people have a pretty good guide as to what's in poor taste and what actually does make people feel uncomfortable. Okay, you mentioned one before, so I'd love to know what about the boys will be boys defense? 
oh my gosh, it still amazes me that we do that. And usually we start off using that terminology or that expression in really harmless ways. So yeah, it might be my son's not doing as much homework as my daughter. Oh yeah, boys will be boys. But when you get to a point where there's physical aggression and boys are interacting in a way that you think, oh, that's not healthy. And we dismiss it by boys will be boys. Or someone makes a sexist joke about a girl or bullies her at school based on the fact that she is a girl, then that excuse just is not only inappropriate, but you start to see that it's actually quite damaging to excuse the behaviour, trivialise the behaviour, because it really means you're condoning that behaviour. So I don't know, would we ever say girls will be girls? And what does that mean? So in this new society, I mean, I feel, you know, I'm I'm old now. I'm older than you, Osha. And I By realize, only a matter of months, Natasha. Let's no, 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 no. I've, I've, I've hit the big 5-0 now. So, you know, it's really weird looking at this wonderful society with this great new generations of young people who are redefining everything. They're defining binary gender stereotypes and rigid stereotypes. They're identifying in a whole range of ways that even in the last 20 years, you know, in the last couple of generations, we didn't even have that same level of, I don't know, independence, confidence, whatever it may be. So I'm really confident that the next generations are going to grapple some of these issues in a way that says, you know what, we're not putting up with this behaviour. We've got the Me Too movement, the Let Her Speak movement. You know, we're going to do what we need to do in order to feel free and respected and equal. And so there's good stuff happening, but, oh, my gosh, some of those stereotypes still persist. They do. There is another one that I have have firsthand experience with, and I I'm, kind of did want to ask you about it because it, it – does have me flummoxed. The, oh, listen, mate, I've got daughters, all oh. right? <laughs> so, therefore, I'm allowed to say this joke because I have daughters and mm. I love my daughters. Mm. That's always a weird one. Look, it is a weird one and there may even be politicians that you can recall using the, I married oh, a yeah. wife, I That's have children, right. I have daughters, and the best one is, I have a mother. And I'm thinking, right, okay. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's actually good to appeal to people on this basis because, seriously, would you want your son or daughter treated in a disrespectful way? And it's a real challenge. And, look, you know, there are some guys who genuinely say to me, I didn't realise until my daughter tried to get into the workforce or she encountered this bullying or the one that I'm getting a lot these days is from dads whose daughters were going to be, like they could have been soccer stars, they could have been football heroes, but actually gave up that opportunity, usually at the age of 12, as many people know, because the competitions at that stage weren't keeping girls in the game. So those dads often say to me, I had no idea, but now I get it. So, Mm. but look, we're all learning, whether we're parents, friends, colleagues, you know, teachers, and clearly politicians as well. When it does come to you know, trying to talk about this stuff to young women, you know, I, I certainly can see it, you know, because our eldest is 16. And um, when some of the more vocal uh, voices in our country around feminism and around women's rights, around equal rights, speak, some of these kids are like, oh, why is she so? And it kind of breaks my heart a bit because I'm like, it does sound, I get that. But you haven't yet been out into the world 
and been passed over for a job. You haven't yet been of an equal skill level with a colleague and not got the gig or you haven't done the same job as someone else and have seen their pay slip and see them get paid. So you have yet to realise why these people are so angry. That's that's true. And I and what I wish for the next generation of girls and women, young women, I don't want them to have those heartbreaks. But you're right, by the same token, actually understanding why some of us and certainly my, you know, four mothers or four sisters, whatever, the reason why there's still a lot, a lot of frustration and anger and the issue that I work on every day, the issue of preventing violence. I mean, sometimes it's really hard not to get upset and frustrated. And today I just feel quite heartbroken, heartbroken that another woman is dead and that people didn't respond to her cries for help. So little wonder some of us do get to be seen as, oh, wow, she's a bit of a, you know, angry old feminist. But I do have so much faith in the next generations. And I also know one thing, it's not going to be an issue solved by women. If we don't do this with men, then it's just not going to happen. And, you know, young men are not going to listen to my views on being a good bystander, but they might listen to you and they might listen to the Ben Browns of the world and they might listen to a whole host of role models and other people that they respect. So anything that we can do as a society to encourage better role models, better behaviour, that all makes a difference. Everyone has a role to play. When you started in this job, I'm pretty sure something like a men's rights activist was like a fairly like fringe dwelling kind of cave creature who <laughs> who was just easily ignored. Yet that kind of voice and that stance has taken such an extraordinary turn towards organization and communal action. How has that changed things? It's really interesting because you're very strong on environmental issues and you know the disproportionate influence that, say, climate change deniers have in the debate. So even though there's this whole body of science and we're all concerned in the main about our environment and protecting our precious planet, so why is it a small group of people seem to have so much power in rediscussing or reinterpreting the science? That's sort of my comparison. I found it really interesting that a small group of people, because I just take it as given that a majority of the community doesn't want a violent society, whether that's against men, women, and certainly not children. So what is it about this small group that finds it so threatening, the work that I and others do? And a lot of people will say, but what about men? And of course, I'm concerned about men whether it's their welfare, whether it's their safety, or whether it's ensuring that men feel, particularly those who might be at risk of being perpetrators, I want them to feel they've got resources to change that behaviour as well. And yep, there are lots of people who say, but it's not all men. Of course it's not all men. You know, no one's suggesting that, but we are suggesting that all men can play a role in helping change some of the attitudes and behaviours. So I've always been big on the idea of collaboration. You know, you don't get anything through an Australian parliament or certainly not the Australian Senate if you don't work together. You don't get things done in society and you certainly don't change attitudes unless you can bring people with you. So those groups have made me nervous and, you know, I've been targeted by them in a way that is, oh, being honest, it's really scary at times and really threatening. Um, and I'm not 
front line. I know that there are women who deal with this and men who are in the gender equality movement who deal with this every day. So I just wish people would understand that what they represent is a very, very, very small minority. And please don't give them credibility. By giving them airtime or retweeting them or even responding to them online, yes. which does does basically turn the bellows on onto the flame. I was really quite moved by uh, Clementine Ford's book, um, Boys Will Be Boys. And yes. the premise is she gave birth to a son. Uh, she wrote her first book, Fight Like a Girl, and, you know, was quite vocal and quite verbal and and she will wade into those muddy waters every single day and go to war online. And I'm, she's a stronger person than I because I couldn't face that amount of weird mm. <laughs> kind of psychological deep-seated issues every single day and treat it with my time. You're right. She, I mean, she's extraordinary. She literally goes into battle. She does every day. Online, I, I you know, know, and calls people out. I don't know how uh, she does it. She's extraordinary. And her, you know, what she's done for us as a society to talk about, you know, I talk a little bit in my book on violence, which is really like a doorstop size book. It's really an essay. You know, I talk about ways that we can change behaviours and we can all play a role. Mm. But it's really Clem who's done the in-depth work on analysing some of those stereotypes yeah. and behaviours that we attribute to boys and girls basically from the moment they're born. And well, yeah, the, I guess the premise of her book was, I've just had a kid. Oh <laughs> shit, my kid's a boy. All right. Yeah a boy who is this many times more likely to not only be a victim of violence, but this many times more likely to perpetrate violence against another yeah. man and this time more likely to perpetrate violence against a woman, how can I make sure he doesn't? Because nobody wants to find out that their son in his, you know, late teens or early 20s or late 30s, whenever, has yep. taken his fists to his wife or child. Nobody wants to find that out. Nobody wants to be the parent of a kid that has inflicted violence, not only on another on another man, but on a, on another woman, and that that surely should be enough to make us as as parents go. Oh, hang on a second. How can we save our kid from this? How can we save our sons from this stuff? We're not only saving wanting to save women from being victims. We want to be saving men from being perpetrators. Absolutely. So again, it goes back to that role modeling that we do as parents. So really simple things as well in our households. Do we divide household chores separately or equally? Some people honestly admit that they pay girls less pocket money than boys. I think that's becoming less of a thing. Do we genuinely show our kids that, you know, there are certain types of role models for women? You know, you can have powerful women in positions and you can have women who are don't necessarily fit the traditional stereotype role of whatever, you know, families may consider the role of a woman. Similarly, men don't have to fulfill, you know, the traditional stereotypes of masculinity and all those things. The images we present matter. The roles we perform matter, how we treat our kids. And it's really important. Do we talk to our daughters or our, you know, nieces in a way that only acknowledges what they look like? You know, and we do it when I see my daughter Cordelia. Often the first thing we'll say is, oh, what a great outfit or aren't you gorgeous today? Don't often say the same thing to my son. That may be a different issue. So again, we all fall into these traps and it doesn't mean that our kids are going to grow up and be violent. Not at all. But it does mean it's part of that puzzle, that jigsaw in society where these behaviours sometimes need to be rethought. You know, why do we treat kids differently based on their gender? Most parents 
actually think it's crazy. Why would we? Even you, who is an activist and has been for your entire career in this space, even you, I'm sure, feel some sort of discomfort when things that you grew up with just not... I believe this, but, oh, this just kind of became a part of the way I see the world, mm-hmm. are challenged. I get that, you know, when the MRAs or other people, for example, in Parliament or AM Talkback Radio guys who love to say, what next? Um, <laughs> you know, their favourite. That's the You know, you can make a three-hour-long Talkback Radio show with just asking what next. I yep. mean, Dan Hillick taught us that, which is brilliant. <laughs> It's a world gone mad. It is. It's a world gone spiced. <laughs> Bureaucracy gone mad. What next? Women talk back radio? No, no. Is it because, like, say, for example, the analogy I would, I would draw is that when I say to people, oh, no, I don't eat meat. I haven't eaten meat in 20 years. Early on when I said, I don't, I don't eat meat, people's reactions was instantly, uh, you don't eat meat, therefore you're upset at me for eating meat, therefore, and then start to get yeah. kind of angry at me. I'm like... You can do whatever you want. You can put whatever you want into your mouth. It's got nothing to do with me. But it was almost like so instantly personalized this thing that they had identified with, well, I'm a meat eater, therefore this person thinks different of me. It's almost like if you challenge someone's view about this sort of stuff, about equality of of someone's kids or equality or the, the equal opportunity of a young man or young woman leaving high school and their career path, if it's challenged, it feels so personal to some people, doesn't it? Well, you know, I was a relatively young person in politics and I learned really early that, of course, you've got to respect different views. And I used to be really shocked by that thought that people would somehow feel aggrieved that I held a position or that they felt that it would be I'd expect exactly the same views of them. I mean, hey, I was an Australian Democrat and a Port Adelaide supporter. Really, if I, I mean, I'd have no friends left if I only, you know, stuck within those cohorts. So, you know, I've always appreciated the fact that you've got to collaborate on this stuff. And just because I believe something doesn't mean it's right, doesn't mean I'm going to be holding it against someone else that they don't share the same views. What I do know is that the things that unite us are really important. And I do believe to my core, and I wouldn't be doing this work if I didn't, that the majority of us, a clear majority, want to live in a society that's equal and happy and healthy. And in fact, most people come up to me now, Osha, and I'll be, you know, when you're allowed to go to the supermarket, when I used to go to the supermarket, you know, people would come up and they'd say, just tell me what to do, or I'm worried about my daughter, or I'm worried about my son. Give me tips. How do I change this? What part can I play? Because people are so sick of seeing statistics on the news. They're sick of seeing friends or neighbours hurt. And your point was a really important one, not just physically, but there's another level of coercion and there's financial and emotional and other abuse. People are genuinely wanting to solve these issues. So they don't always have to agree with me, but I just hope there's some tips that I might be able to give or our watch or other organisations in this space that actually lead to a nicer, fairer world. Does that sound naive? No, it does. It's, it's as bad as naive as me believing that this coronavirus pandemic of COVID-19 is enough to wake a lot of people up to understanding what a graph looks like and understanding what an exponential curve looks like and understanding what the capacity of a health system in relation to uh, the warming of a planet and the capacity of our ecosystem to sustain our lives. So now we can understand this information and maybe make better choices about climate. Uh, when That's not naive, though, because I actually... <laughs> actually think in some small way we're already seeing some real insights from people understanding 
maybe not the complexities of some of those issues to which you refer, but certainly re-examining how they live their lives. And even the sense of community and neighbourhood, that gives me some hope. The fact that people are realising getting back to basics. And I say that from a privileged position, obviously. There are people who are suffering terribly, whether it's health-wise, financially, and indeed even with situations of violence and other things. So there is a silver lining for some groups, but there are others who are really doing it tough. And maybe at the end of this process, you're right. Maybe we'll get to keep free childcare for some of those important <laughs> essential workers. That's going to be a tough one to give back. Maybe. Man, that's going to be I a... know. We're oh, starting shit. to I wanted to be in the room when they realised they had to do it. I wanted to <laughs> see them go, we've got no choice, Scotty. We're going to have to do it. But I told them it's un- we, un- we can't afford this empathy. Going to have to do it. New starts. What do you mean new starts? Not enough. People, quiet Australians, kind of get by. We've been fucking telling you for 20 years. I've been on the dole. It's not enough money. I wish I was in the room, but that's just the vindictive part of me. But I'm glad we're there is what I'm saying. I'm yes. glad we're there. That within, if I called, you know, when we were organising this interview, hey, you know, in April, I want to talk to you about the fact that we've now got national telehealth, universal basic income, free childcare, and distance no. education for every kid in the country. Are you cool for three o'clock on Friday? You'd be like, what fucking country do you live in? Exactly. The parallel universe. <laughs> like so, this one. Oh, the Democrats, they would never have believed it. Oh, my God. <laughs> so during this time of lockdown, when we do want to care for people, yes, and it is a time of, uh, as we've heard and as you've you know talked about tragically, it is a time of increased domestic violence because I, I'm, you know, I'm just going to pluck it out of the air, but with added financial pressure and with added uncertainty, it sets off a whole bunch of other things around you know, wanting to drink and then you know, being cooped up and not having a regular routine or whatever. I don't know. There must be a school in different ways. But mm-hmm. ultimately, we're, we're a lot of women and a lot of kids are in a lot of trouble. How can we best look after those people and how can we reach out to them and how can we – what are some signs to look for if the, if the woman's on the phone or their friend's on the phone or, or texting and they're not able to – how can we read between the lines? What, can, what are some signs that we should check for? Well, firstly, you're right about the fact that there's all these ingredients that can compound – people's situation if they're already in a violent situation or they're at risk of. But it's really important to remember that taking drugs or drinking a lot of alcohol or having a mental health problem or even having a childhood history of violence doesn't lead or cause that violence. There's still got to be that underlying disrespect that creates a situation in which you think it's okay to hurt particularly a woman or a child. So, In this time of stress, financial stress, cooped up in small spaces, oh, all the others. I mean, I'm in a relatively large house with my family who I love dearly, and yet we're finding it the greatest test of our, you know, familial relationships. So, of course, there's added stresses. But, yeah, you're right. For some people, it's very, very real. How do we look after those people? Well, reaching out, you can text, phone, email, snail mail people, ask if people are okay. Obviously, if you hear fights or altercations and you are worried, do something. Call authorities, call people, check on them. So I think there are things that we're sometimes a little nervous about doing, but in this particular time of stress, we know from police officers that the rates of domestic violence are expected to increase. And they've also given a commitment in most jurisdictions. They're not going to reduce. In fact, they're going to increase their support 
for victims of domestic and family violence. So use the police, use the services that are available. 1-800-RESPECT, Men's Line, all of these services have received additional funding from the Commonwealth. So yes, you were talking about the list of things that our Prime Minister and government have committed to in the last couple of weeks that I didn't necessarily expect. Well, they came up with a package that includes money for those helplines. So that's really important. And of course, if you think you need to get someone out of a situation and into a shelter, a safe house, a refuge, or into your house, then if that's warranted, then you do it. And it's really hard, isn't it? Because with the pandemic, the antidote to the pandemic is that we all stay home. So you don't want people trapped in homes with abusers. That's not going to be the case for majority of Australians, clearly. But for that minority in that situation, please look out for them. And there are resources. Our watch on the website. We've got plenty of information as well. But you know what? Just be a good bystander. Whether or not people are at risk of violence, even just being a good bystander and checking on your friends, neighbours and family, that's not a bad thing to do. And you don't always have to do it in person. When you mentioned uh, the, the awful murder that happened in Australia, in uh, South Australia last night, mm-hmm. when people, when they hear calls for help, and they don't do anything. What's normally behind that? I think a lot of Australians in some small way might relate to that. I think we know that we've treated family violence as a private matter. You know, over the many, many decades, people have said things like, oh, it's a private matter. I don't want to get involved. People genuinely fear perhaps for their own safety. And that's why I will always emphasise don't intervene unless it's safe to do so. There are other ways to get help. But I think we still have that sense of, oh, this is not a public issue. This is not a community issue. This is a private matter. And I think if anything's changed over the last decade, there's an understanding that this is everybody's business. I don't know what it is that makes people not respond when people are actually asking or crying for help. I'm finding it really hard to get my head around that. I think there's a difference sometimes when you think you hear something, but you're not sure. But when someone's calling for help, to not respond to that. I don't know. I don't know what's behind that. But I do understand that people are fearful. I do understand that people make a distinction between private and public. But we've got on too long doing that. It's time to change that or else we are literally going to see more slaughter in our suburbs. Oh. And that, to me, is unacceptable. God. It, it, you know, the, the story of Kitty Genovese, which was the, you know, it was the first one, I think it was 1963, 64 or something in, in New York. This woman who was basically, she was being attacked in an alleyway yes. below an, uh, like three apartment blocks in New York City. You know how you've yep. seen them all. And there was yep. something like 46 people heard her scream yeah. for help and nobody did anything they talked about it led to people to re- research a thing called the bystander effect in that yeah. the more people that hear the cry for help the less the onus is upon you to do anything so oh, someone else will do it someone else will do it someone else will do it but i guess the question i would ask i'm mean, just kind of sitting here listening to you think talking about it am i i live in a in a duplex in a fairly tightly packed part of sydney so mm-hmm. we, we have a yard, but it's a little yard. But I reckon if you draw a 20-metre circle around my house, there'd be five houses in that, you know, we're, we're, it's pretty tight in here, 20 or 30 metres, right? So if I heard that kind of noise and you know and I know there's a thing in someone's voice when they yeah. are they're not fooling around, when something yeah. not good is happening, do I want to go to bed at night knowing that a man who does that sort of thing is sleeping 15 metres from my bed? Probably not. I don't know him, but mm. how do I how do I personally feel knowing that that kind of a person capable of that kind of violence lives so close to me? I might not know them. It might be a private matter for them, but it is now a personal matter for me because That's right. I don't want my suburb to have 
that person, probably his mates who haven't pulled him up on it. And, you know, I don't want that sort of thing around. And it, it might not be my problem because it's in their home, but it's my problem because it's near my home. And that's, I guess that's the way I think about it. And I'm guessing much like when, you know, we tell all our teenagers, look, if someone's taken an overdose, just call the ambulance. No one's going to get it, arrested. You're not going to like, you can, yep. you can report this stuff anonymously, right, Natasha? Exactly. But I mean, I was going to make the analogy with mental health too. It's so important and been really, you know, the last decade or two, the way we've changed our attitudes towards the stigma around mental health. And you have talked about these issues and, you know, people's well-being. And I love the fact that, and I'm a former deputy chair of Beyond Blue, so I feel very passionate about these issues. But you're so right. We do say to our kids, what's the worst thing that can happen? You know, you're not going to die of embarrassment, but oh my goodness, if you could have intervened. But there's also the other matter, which is it's really complex when people are leaving or want to leave relationships or even discovering that they're in a relationship that is at risk or is violent. And it's not always the case of, hey, I'm going to come in as your friend in a, as a knight in shining armour, I'm going to get you out of there. It might be in a high-pressure situation where someone's literally being attacked that you can do that. But then it's a much more complex process to give people the agency or feel that they've actually got the support and power mm. to leave. So sometimes it can be a little frustrating because some people listening to this podcast will know people and say, but we tried, mm. you know, and this person didn't want to do this. And then it went on and on and, you know, we got so frustrated because we wanted to help. So there are those stories too. But you're right, if you're living in an area where you think, or you know something's going on, hmm. you can report it to the police, whether you do it anonymously or whether you put your name to it. But I think absolutely reaching out to say to someone, as we would increasingly now to people who we worry about, maybe their mental and emotional health, are you okay? And, you know, some of the strangest places are where women get support, hairdressers, Mm. People confide in hairdressers, yeah, yeah. medical professionals, physiotherapists. They're often the first people to see bruises. Oh my God. So there are a lot of professions that can actually mm. help um, report but also offer support. It's not just about getting justice and holding perpetrators accountable because ultimately we want to, you know, perpetrators to change their behaviour. It's about providing that support. And the support might not always what we think it should be, but it may be what the victim or survivor requires. I remember as a, just as you're saying that, I remember as a kid, I reckon I was maybe nine or 10 and our neighbor in the house that we grew up in, uh, my aunt and uncle were around for a lunch and there was some shouting going on next door. And <laughs> my aunt said to my mum, is everything okay again? She went, oh yeah. But she walked into the door the other day. And everyone went, mm, oh. It was like an episode of Downton Oof. Abbey when everyone's eyes went to each other. And I'm a kid yeah. going, what? Something's okay. And I'm like, oh, I'm nine. It's so like, oh, she walked into the door. I've walked into a door. I don't know what that's like. <laughs> that's the line that people would would say, you know, as a, as a way. Yep. Because as you mentioned, like, because there's that thing of, well, why didn't she just leave? As you mentioned, it, it's never that simple. It's never, ever, ever that simple. Someone who has 
agency and freedom of, you know, financial freedom and, and security and, and, you know, the ability to, uh, you know, pay their own rent or whatever is the kind of person to be like, why don't I just leave? Well, if you haven't got a job, as if women who have, of young kids often don't yep. because they're home caring and you, well, I don't know where I'm going to stay. I might have been moved in this relationship. I might have been moved away from everyone that supports me because of this yep. manipulative tactic. It's a very complicated, very, very complicated thing. But there are shelters out there in our community. There are structures that can help women extract themselves from these situations. Indeed. And it's funny because I made a comment on Twitter today and someone wrote back and said, no, it's not about getting the women out. It's about getting the perpetrators out. So yes, there are a manner of you know responses that are required. They need to be resourced. You need leadership on this stuff from you know, governments and policymakers as well. Don't underestimate the stigma of these issues, of course. One thing we know about, you know, violence against women and children, generally speaking, is that it doesn't discriminate. So there are some groups that are more likely to experience this violence. So, for example, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women are, you know, many more times likely to be affected. It's like 30 times. At least 32 times more oh. likely to be hospitalised. Uh, we know that the rates of violence against culturally and linguistically diverse women in communities are increasing. Um, well, they're very high, but we don't actually have an understanding mm. of the specifics. And same with women with disabilities. But you've got to remember the biggest single risk for being a victim of domestic violence or sexual assault in Australia today is simply being female. So, you know, Rosie Batty taught us this. She said one of the first things she said was, you know, it doesn't matter what your postcode is. So it could be anyone who is a victim of this. And so Mm. there are a lot of women who don't come forward for a whole range of reasons, whether that's stigma and dignity and all these other things or whether it is, as you've just pointed out, all those other support basics, you know, the financial support, powerlessness, Mm. um, or indeed fear. And if we need to be reminded of the fear of leaving a partner, you just think of what happened to Hannah Clark. So I think a lot of Australians saw that as a wake-up call and went, what, this really happens? It can happen to someone like her, this so-called picture-perfect family, when clearly it was not. People don't just wake up one morning and snap. Usually this is the end of, you know, a lifetime or a long period of abuse or coercion. It is abs. Uh, so when, what do you what do you like when you? I'm just asking, like, how do you get up and do this every day? When you see, when you get up in the morning and you've got, and it was a you know two years ago now though, and your daughter would have been you know still like 13 or 14, and you see the kind of things that were written about Taylor Harris, or even when she was younger. Yep. When you see just the way that Julia Gillard was treated. Yep. by not just the people in Parliament, but by people who are apparently adhering to a code of journalistic ethics. <laughs> yep. You know, when you see that sort of thing, how do you then get up every day and go, how am I supposed to deal with the stuff that's, you know, out in the suburbs when this is <laughs> happening? You know, how do you get up every day and do it? Um, you know that wonderful shampoo commercial of the 90s, Pantene, it won't happen overnight, but it will happen. The glorious Rachel Hunter did that in her beautiful New Zealand accent. That's become, I think, the motto of my life, the fact that things don't often change overnight, and even when we think they will. So when Hannah Clark was brutally murdered, I thought, okay, this is it. People are going to say, this is an emergency. We have to put in the funds. We have to respond in a way that creates change. It doesn't happen like that, but things have changed over time. And you're right, Julia Gillard's made it hopefully better and easier for the next female prime minister, whoever she may be, whenever that may be. 
But in order, I mean, enduring that ridiculous trivialization and abuse, appalling. And then you look at Taylor Harris and you see how she has turned that around. What a role model she is to my daughter and to my son. She's actually now an R-Watch ambassador. We're thrilled to have her along. So you just know that calling out the behavior is something that happens now more regularly. That gives me great hope. As I say in my time in parliament, you know, there were a lot worse things done and said that we couldn't always draw attention to or get justice for. So things change slowly. So I get up in the morning because I know change is possible. I'm also not on the front line. I work on primary prevention. So I know that the work I do is going to take decades and generations. But my role models are the women that I've been speaking to last night and today who were literally looking after friends and colleagues and other women in order to ensure that they were safe, especially when this horrible incident happened in South Australia. So, oh my gosh, Osher, if change wasn't possible, I'm not sure how we'd do it. Maybe I'm just a masochist. Maybe I'm just going, no, this is, you know, this is what I do. But no, I do believe that there are so many good people out there, so many good men and women, and they want change. And so I will continue to work in this area for change until I think it's not possible. Going back to what something you said earlier, you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who doesn't want a less violent society. That's true. And you mentioned that notion of people who grow up with it and it, it's what you know. So sometimes I think we've got to understand that people grow up in a different environment and mm. therefore how we help people adjust to an environment that it's a healthier and happier one. But on the flip side, those of us who are aware of these issues and like to think that we have a, an understanding of hopefully some good, positive, loving family dynamics, we've still got roles to play as well because nobody's perfect in this. In fact, no country's perfect. You know, no one country in the world has actually achieved gender equality. So if we're this slow as a global community, oh my goodness, imagine some of the difficulties that confront some other countries that perhaps aren't so privileged and fortunate as we are. I look at the world that G is about to, you know, head into as a uh, as a member of the workforce, and then I think, what's possible between that and sixteen years from now when Wolf is, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, what's possible? You know, you ask, are you a masochist? I would put it to you that you've chosen, <laughs> you've chosen this path in your life because you, you believe that fundamentally people are good and they do want to change and they do want things to be better for not just them but for everybody. I do. I also know that in my work, particularly formally as the ambassador for women and girls for Australia, that I saw some of the worst aspects of humanity. I you know, whether it's refugee camps on the Syrian border or yeah. whether it's, you know, gosh, Papua New Guinea, domestic violence shelters. I can't even begin to tell you some of the places, you know, yeah. whether it was before that visiting Albania, you know, during the Kosovo crisis and trying to get rape, you know, recognised as a war crime. I've really seen and heard awful things that have made me question humanity at times. So, the antidote to that is only one thing, and that is to have faith in the rest of humanity. And sometimes people are driven to do things for a range of reasons. But when you've got an evidence base that tells us why there's violence against women and children, well, it would be inappropriate for us not to look at that evidence and go, you know what, we know how to fix this. 
let's start doing it. So yeah, I do have faith in humanity, but sometimes that's very cruelly shaken, I have to say. But what's the alternative? Yeah, well, it's it'll be shaken because your job is to go and look at that. We, there are people like you that do that job, so people like me and my family don't have to go to Bougainville and don't have to go to Syria and don't have to go to Kosovo. And you know, it's the same reason why we pay cops to do that job. Absolutely, we pay those people so they can go and and deal with the really tricky parts of what it is to live in a community, so we can sit here and watch MasterChef. That's that's it. We have the privilege of not having to care about that stuff because we pay taxes, which then pay. Anyway, it's a long story. Um, No, but but we can can still watch MasterChef and do exactly what you do, which is care and make a change and make a contribution. And I never underestimate your contribution and your reach and influence as an individual, whether it's on environmental issues or mental health issues or what have you, in the same way that I never underestimate the fact that individuals can make a difference, mm. even sitting in their lounge room. So even if people hear this podcast and think, what could I do? And some people will say, you know what, I'm going to volunteer at a shelter. Or some people are going to say, I'm going to send some money to this group. Or others will say, you know what, that couple next door, I am going to call the cops next time. Or it may just be someone says, you know what, I'm going to be careful when I hear someone tell a sexist joke and just say, you know what, that actually doesn't make me feel comfortable. So there are so many little things and big things we can each do. But I do take my hat off to those frontline workers, whether in their, in women's shelters or healthcare or they're in law enforcement or anywhere else where you can actually make a difference to people's lives in a positive way. So, yep, good luck to them, especially during this COVID pandemic. But, yeah, here's to a community that actually collaborates and works together for change. That's, that's all I hope for. Nothing more. <laughs> I'm on board. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much for joining me today. On, a, on what obviously has been a very difficult day. You would have been up very early to get on the um, the newses and things this morning. So um, thanks heaps for being a part of the show. And uh, you're the best. Thanks for making time for it. You're very generous to have me on. It's been really, really interesting. So thank you, Osha. Right then. So that was Natasha Stott Despoyer. And uh, that was pretty good. Sorry, the guitar's here. I was just playing it while we were doing that. I thought I'd keep playing it for this bit. You can find out more about Natasha Sotdespoia at ourwatch.org.au and she's on Twitter, nstotdespoia, N-S-T-O-T-T-D-E-S-P-O-J-A. Um, she's great, great human being. And I'm so grateful that she came on the show to, to talk. She's... Um, She's fantastic. And as you heard me say, she was quite a hero when I was a younger person because I'd never seen anyone that looked like anyone that I knew in uh, in Parliament. And I remember she walked in at Dr. Martin's one day and I went, ah, oh, there you are. It was super cool. Anyway, um, thanks heaps for being a part of it. We're back here on Friday. Um, thanks, Andy, for making the show. Thanks, Rachel, for being my executive producer. Thanks, Hayley Van Spagna, for being on socials. And, of course, Mike Mills, who's a much better guitar player than me, uh, for all the music. If you need me through the week, you can find me. Send Osher email at gmail.com. I'm off to try and put a Prozac pill into a dog. Actually, that's Audrey's job. She knows how to do it way better than me. I always mess it up. I make him more stressed. Thanks so much. for uh, being here and I'll talk to you on Monday till then sleep well and dream of beautiful things 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 